Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, ETSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It is, uh, it's been a rainy um, August 10th here, 2023, here in East Tennessee. Uh, today I'm going to talk about this new approval for talcatamab and the um, uh, ignoring of the next item on my to-do list, as well as the STOP-CA trial, which is a torvastatin for anthracycline-associated cardiac dysfunction in lymphoma patients. Um, you'll see the link to that in the show notes. But first, let's talk about this approval for uh, talcatamab, Talvi. First thing, there's a lot of sound-alike even look-alike in the name here for talcatamab, brand name Talvi, which is not teclistamab or tecvaly. So teclistamab is approved for um, multiple myeloma as well. It is a T-cell, bispecific T-cell engager that binds BCMA, B-cell maturation antigen, and CD3, which is on the T-cell. Uh, this drug, talcatamab, brand name Talvi, is a... Um, G-coupled protein receptor class C group 5 member D, or GPRC5D, CD3 T-cell engager. So this uh, G-coupled protein receptor. But the way we name these things, you know, these biophysiologic targets like RET, MET, sometimes uh, we don't know what they end up being when they're named. So this must have been like one of a million of these G-coupled protein receptors that got named. Now they would call it the multiple myeloma G-coupled protein receptor, which would be a lot easier. Um, anyway, uh, this uh, GPRC5D, which by the way, there's, um, uh, there is a CAR-T product that targets this out there. Um, it's expressed on the surface of myeloma cells, um, normal plasma cells, uh, and then keratinized tissue in skin and tongue. And I highlight that, that this is going to target the skin and the tongue coming later. Um, so this FDA approval is an accelerated approval based on response rate and duration response in relapsed refractory multiple myeloma patients who have had at least four lines of therapy, including an IMID, a proteasome inhibitor, and a CD33 targeting antibody like uh, daratumumab. So this is given subcutaneously. Patients should, not must, should is what the label says, should be hospitalized for up to 48 hours after the first three doses, these are the ramp-up doses. This schedule seems similar to teclistamab. So day one, they get 0.01 milligrams per kilogram subcute. Then have to be watched for 48 hours. Then day four, 0.6 mg per kg. Um, now that day four dose could be given two days after day one or four days after, depending on side effects and tolerability. So you could admit somebody, give them their day one, wait 48 hours as long as there's no side effects, and then give their day four on day three per the label. And the last of the step-up dose is day seven. That's 0.4 mg per kg. And then the, the normal dosing can follow 0.4 mg per kg weekly or 0.8 mg per kg every two weeks. Uh, and that, um, that you can see that dosing schedule. Uh, Pre-medications for those first three doses in the step-up phase should include dexamethasone, 16 milligrams or equivalent, diphenhydramine, 50 milligrams or equivalent, equivalent uh, acetaminophen, 650 to 1,000 milligrams or equivalent. Uh, there are boxed warnings for cytokine release syndrome, ICANS, and there's a REMS program. And um, the REMS program is called Tecvali and Talvi. So both of these drugs from the same company have the same REMS program, which I'm sure, I'm not sure. It seems like that could be confusing. You have two drugs for the same disease, but different targets that sound alike in their brand name. Okay. Um, 
All right, so cytokine release syndrome occurred in 76%. Um, and this is how it goes for like your first four doses if you get the weekly dose as far as cytokine release syndrome. 26%, sorry, 29% with the first dose, 44% with the second dose, 33% with the third dose. And then the first dose you get as an outpatient, 30% CRS. Um, it looks like maybe the CRS is a little bit lower if you do the every two week um, version, maybe. Uh, ICANs occurred in 55%, but I think, uh, you know, people are starting to get used to the cytokine release syndrome and ICANs, um, and patients, I, I think, are, are, you know, able to tolerate that probably if they, if they achieve the benefit, which they don't always do. Um, however, what I think is going to really be uh, discouraging for patients is this oral toxicity and, and associated weight loss. So 80% of people had some sort of oral toxicity. Uh, that includes dysglycia uh, and 49%, so like altered food taste. 34% had dry mouth. 23% had dysphagia, trouble swallowing. Uh, stomatitis also occurred. Uh, a glycia, so like no taste, occurred in 18%. Um, this happened, the median time to onset of this oral toxicity was 15 days. 65% um, quote, did not resolve to baseline, which means it was permanent uh, for these folks, or at least they didn't live long enough for, for any recovery, which is really discouraging. Um, I like to eat. Everyone likes to eat. Uh, now, associated with this, 62% had weight loss. 29% uh, of these patients had a grade 2 weight loss, which is um, more than 10% of your body weight. So, uh, you know, all right, so we got the cytokine release syndrome and the ICANs. Okay. We're used to that with CAR-Ts and now with these bispecifics, some of them. Uh, infections, uh, cytopenias, mostly lymphopenia. So uh, a grade three or four lymphopenia occurred in 80% of patients, far more than grade three or four anemia or neutropenia or, uh, or thrombocytopenia anemia. Skin toxicity, 62%. Remember, it's the keratinized surface of the, of the skin uh, and the tongue where you have this G-coupled protein receptor class C, group five, member D. Um, so, uh, so on the nails, 50% had nail disorders, uh, skin toxicity, 62%, uh, grade three in only 0.3%. A third had elevated LFTs, only 3.3% was at a grade three. Um, efficacy was based on the monumental trial, and this data was presented at ASH. I didn't cover it, I'm pretty sure, in the ASH update because it wasn't FDA approved, and there were some other uh, more practice-changing things immediately from, from ASH. Um, you know, the, the overall response right here was 73% regardless of weekly or every other week dosing um, uh, once you got to the treatment dose. Uh, complete responses in 9% in and 13% respectively between the weekly and the bi-weekly. So, um, you know, a 10% complete response rate is, um, is reasonable. One in 10 will have their disease, you know, go away, which is, you know, quite efficacious for folks who have gone through four lines of therapy. I mean, 70% overall have some response, so, so certainly an active drug, but also a very toxic drug that's going to require, obviously, a lot of education, but also a lot of support to get patients through this. Um, so there, uh, you know, folks, I don't think it's going to be as easy as maybe put these folks on the low-dose olanzapine, which somebody is going to try in myeloma and, and publish it, um, because it's not just that they don't feel like eating, it's that there's, there's toxicity to the mouth. That, that makes it hard to eat with dysphagia, dry mouth, food doesn't taste the way it's supposed to, and just increasing your appetite isn't gonna make food taste better. So it's gonna be 
like a chore. Usually eating is not a chore. It's like the thing that gets you through the 11 o'clock meeting is the thought of lunch. Um, now imagine you have the 11 o'clock meeting and then you're like, all right, I have to eat something because it's good for me and I need nourishment even though I'm not going to taste it or it's going to taste bad. All right, so that's going to be the challenge, I think, with uh, talcatamab. The challenge for us as clinicians is making sure you don't confuse it with teclistamab, all the logistics uh, and the toxicity. Okay, now I want to talk about stop CA. So this is um, a, a randomized controlled trial of 150 patients in each arm uh, funded by uh, the National Heart and Lung Institute, done by, I think, some cardio-oncology groups, uh, nine practices across the U.S. and Canada, took patients with lymphoma getting anthracycline-based chemo, put half, 150, on a torvastatin-40, half on placebo. They have preclinical um, data and some very scant clinical data that a torvastatin can help mitigate uh, anthracycline-mediated cardiotoxicity by uh, basically reducing oxidative stress is kind of the theory, and they, they've shown this uh, in the laboratory in mice, apparently. So it's, it's not that you're delaying the development of uh, coronary artery disease-associated um, heart failure or something like that, right? They actually excluded anybody in this study who had any reason to be on a statin, right? So the study design was pretty good. Um, and they were getting, uh, you know, anthracycline-based chemo for lymphoma. Some of, like, I think maybe 20, 25% were getting ABVD for Hodgkin's. The rest were getting RCHOP or EPOC-based regimens. Um, so, you know, very nice study design. And the primary endpoint here is a 10% or greater decrease in left ventricular ejection fraction down to less than 55%. So if you went from 70%, say you went yeah, from 75%, to 60%, even though that's more than a 10% decrease in LVF, it didn't go below 55%, so it didn't meet the primary endpoint. And the rationale for this surrogate marker of LVEF decreasing by 10 percentage points down to below 55 is that in a large study of like 1,400 people, when that happened, 16% of those folks, 16% of those who had a 10% decrease in LVEF went on to develop symptomatic heart failure. Those who didn't have that large of a decrease, none of them went on to develop heart failure. So this decrease in LVF to below 55% from what was higher than 65% when they started was uh, is a surrogate for then going on to develop heart failure. So they get a torvastatin 40 for a year, and again, the chemo is going to take maybe maybe four months. Uh, and then at the end of 12 months, they, they measured EF. They tried to do MRI in everybody, um, but because of COVID, they did echo in some folks. It's not really reported the differences uh, if there's any variation here because echocardiograms are a little... Like every echocardiogram I've seen is the EF is 55 to 60%. It's a 5% wiggle room. And so that maybe would give you some question as to the reliability of, of our endpoint here if, um, if this is not the case. But I think most of these folks, their EF was measured with uh, an MRI. So, you know, they didn't see a difference in like actually developing heart failure. But what they did see is a, is a statistically significant a decreased rate of this LVEF going down below 55% from above 10% uh, or more points. So only 9% of patients in the atorvastatin group had that decrease to less than 55% compared to 22% in the placebo group. Um, so this is a surrogate marker endpoint study, which they very appropriately say, in, as, as, they, as it's a nicely written study here uh, and, and manuscript that, you know, this is a surrogate marker. That's the big limitation. 
Uh, it seems reasonable if people are getting anthracycline-based chemo, and they should be on a statin, put them on a statin. If they're borderline needing a statin, go ahead and put them on a statin. And if they have no reason for a statin, maybe think about it. And they say that. They say consider it, right? And I think that's that's appropriate. Um, the My only really critique of the design of this study is there is a slight imbalance in the atorvastatin arm where more patients in the atorvastatin arm received EPOC-based treatment. So um, 16 point Six 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 seven percent of people on the on the atorvastatin arm got an epoch-based regimen compared to just seven point three percent in the placebo arm, which means the placebo arm had a higher percentage of patients by about eight and a half percent, eight point six percent, who got bolus-based anthracycline, which is more cardiotoxic than the infusion-based anthracycline given epoch, um, which could be enough just to explain the results of this. Okay. What would be really fascinating is to, to measure EF 24 months after this study or 12 months after they stopped atorvastatin and see is this benefit still there or is it just chance? Um, it's a relatively easy intervention, atorvastatin 40. It's a relatively non-toxic intervention um, easily with easy monitoring parameters. Um, you know, our, our colleagues uh, here in you know pharmacy academia that work in Amcare, they want statins put in the water, um, so it, it seems um, uh, seems plausible that people will start to adopt this pretty quick. Uh, that that would to me this is a pretty uh, we would not use this standard of evidence, you know to to approve a drug to treat cancer that it improves a a, a surrogate endpoint for disease activity. Uh, or at least we wouldn't we wouldn't be in favor of it in in true evidence based practice. So uh, I, I think we'll probably see a lot more uh, study of this. I hope, um, but certainly some that could be really beneficial for uh, for our lymphoma patients. Um, so uh, you can read this for yourself in the show notes. Nicely done study. Kudos to the investigators for doing this. Um, would like to see a larger study looking at actual development of heart failure to confirm these results before I shout it from the rooftop. All right. Thank you for listening. Uh, you can follow me on the application formerly known as Twitter at FarmDDNIP, and you can follow the podcast on uh, those social media platforms uh, at OncoFarmPod. Um, so, and remember, until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.